0: Hello and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the app podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We
1: hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Roslyn. Hi, Nisa. It's so good to see you today. Uh,
0: Hi. You... <laughs> Thank you. You and I have been collaborators and friends for many years, but um, for people listening who don't know us, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Roslyn Clark. I am the Director of Prospect Management and Research at Partners in Health. Before that, I was with BWF, um, Morehouse College, and Harvard University. That's wonderful.
0: I, oh, this is Misa, I'm Misa Lovato. I am the Director of Prospect Management and Analytics at the Rhode Island School of Design. Before that, I was at the University of Colorado and I'm also the immediate past president of APRA.
1: Um, Sorry, I just realized one of a connection, a relevant connection that we have that, um, it's not the beginning of our collaborative relationship, but the first year that APRA had a DEI committee. Yes. Uh, I served on, a, and, and at that time, Misa was president. And so that's kind of the seed where a lot of our our collaborations and solo projects grew out of. I just want that's, to shout out to the APRA DEI committee. That's exactly right. that That was a very
0: great year. Um, starting the ABR DEI committee and actually was part of, I think, how we started collaborating on a presentation that you and I have now done so many times that um, that we started developing in 2019, which was around diversifying donor bases. And in that presentation, we laid out an action plan across five steps. Um, The five steps were Um, One, to create a plan to ethically collect, store, and use identity data. Uh, Step two was to learn about the philanthropic practices and motivations of marginalized communities. Step three was to consider the influence of bias within your data and practices step four was to identify diverse prospects for portfolios board nominations and events and step five was to measure your organization's effectiveness in engaging diverse constituents and we started developing this in 2019 which was only three years ago but feels like a lifetime ago now and so much <laughs> has happened and it's so it's funny to think that we started working on this um I mean, of course, at the time there was there was a lot of conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion and philanthropy. but um, but we started working on this before the murder of George Floyd and be, before this became a a huge focus in um, in nonprofit organizations. And so we have had a little time now having, Developed this, rolled it out many times, and then having seen things play out in different organizations, to um, you know, to really, I guess, evaluate what we had put forward and um, and think about it. And I'm I'm wondering, Roslyn, you know, since that time and seeing how things have seeing how things have played out in different organizations, I'm wondering if there's anything that you would have proposed differently.
1: Yes and no. (laughs) Meaning um, at the time we decided that we didn't want to focus on the why of it. That a lot of other people and presentations had addressed the why and that we wanted to get straight to the how and the what. And it made sense at that point. I'm, I'm glad I think it was the right decision to make at that time. But it kind of lends itself now three years later as a great time to go back to the why <laughs> because I feel that that um, uh, maybe it's a good time to, as a refresher or for people who didn't um, who weren't as clear about it or, or aren't as clear about it as they could be or would like to be because it's really the theme I'm noticing is if you don't know the why then you're not set up for success with any of the hows and the whats. I just couldn't agree more. I feel like that's
0: been such a big missing piece. And, you know, at the time that we were developing the presentation, we were referring people to some of the great research that's been done by the Donors of Color Network, by... um, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy um, and uh, the D Five Coalition. We we were wanting to um, promote those experts as and and encourage people to to use those resources to kind of understand contextually why they would be doing this. But I feel like the thing that I've seen as the biggest gap, the biggest missing piece as I've seen organizations start to move toward donor diversification is that often they are thinking about donor diversification in terms of um, just expanding their donor base and increasing revenue um, and and not not in a way that is inherently exploitative. Certainly there's an aspect to it that is thinking about you know who are we including who are we including in our board who are we including in our events and and we should have more constituents that have a relationship with us that could um, that could you know represent more diverse perspectives so I think there's there's some understanding of that. I think though that many organizations still haven't completely Dealt with the, dealt with the, the the nature of philanthropy in America as being, um, you know, a a a, a white savior, um, being a an action of white saviorism, and also that um, philanthropy in the way that we practice it, um, not only does it does it you know center and uplift generally wealthy white people. Um, But it also um, supports a lot of systems of oppression and white supremacy. And I think that sometimes when we're thinking about donor diversification, um, we get really caught up in just the, you know, in the very simple, um, we, you know, we went from who do we know that knows bill gates to who do we know that knows oprah um and we're just exactly. sort of thinking about like who are the wealthy people of color that we um that we can you know immediately name and that becomes the the focus in the donor diversification plan when in fact we should be really thinking about like who is already a constituent um who hasn't been well represented in our work or who would likely be a constituent and, and we have not done the good work of, of engaging with those communities in a way that would feel authentic and in a way that would um, you know, it feel like it should be, our work should be a priority to those
1: communities. Absolutely. And I think the other two other pieces I'd add in terms of um, centering whiteness Um, is remembering that, A, it's not just white people who have high capacity, and there's more than just Oprah, (laughs) but also to think about non-monetary contributions that people can make that are really, really valuable. So obviously, we're all in the fundraising profession, so there's always going to be a dollar amount that we need to get to, to support our missions and programs, but there are a lot of contributions that people can make outside of money mm-hmm. that can really help us get there, yes. that can really boost us towards those goals. And we don't want to forget about them and that importance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've already forgotten my second point. <laughs> oh, no,
0: it's, I, that's such a good, it's such a good point, Rosalind, because I feel like especially as philanthropy has become more focused on um, on larger gifts and having fewer donors, and and you know becoming more efficient, and and certainly our profession has played a big role in doing that, and in focusing our efforts on fewer donors who can give much larger gifts. But one of the things that's been that's been lost in that is thinking about the um, communal aspect of philanthropy, the community aspect of philanthropy, and also how people can um, contribute greatly to our missions, to our work in serving marginalized communities and serving social justice issues um, in ways that aren't financial. And I think that um, I actually, uh, Crystal Enter at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital um, was talking about something she's added to her research documents that says uh, non-monetary philanthropy or non-financial philanthropy, something like that, just to sort of recognize the different ways in which people can contribute. And I think
1: I think that's a, a really important point. Absolutely. Um, I just remembered my other point. <laughs> so I'm gonna skip <laughs> Good. Which is that the other um, hazard of fundraising is or i should say making gifts for some people it there's um like a public relations aspect to it right so there are some people who are giving money not because they want to give the money but because they want to say they gave the money they want the cachet that goes with it and those gifts tend to be less thoughtful or and or They tend to come with more strings attached and an expectation of power and influence at the recipient organization or in the larger community. And so, especially for people in our profession where we're focused on um, high philanthropic capacity people, we want to make sure that that doesn't translate to power, right? that just because these people are filling in the top of our campaign pyramid doesn't mean they're at the top of the power and influence and I have a say so on what you do pyramid.
0: Well um, and I I agree with you so completely because I think that is part of the way in which philanthropy has supported white supremacy is that we have allowed people who already have privilege and access um, to make decisions in our organizations, make directional decisions, or have a lot of access to leadership. Um, and And so they do have, they're now influencing another sector that they may maybe wouldn't be wouldn't be able to influence whether that's you know in a in a public school. so there's the public sector or whether that's um, you know in the in the nonprofit sector. so um, so I think that area of influence and the ability to um, to help shape the way in which we approach our work is a, is a problem when we are really only focusing on, a very small group of of donors and that a group of donors that isn't typically very representative of the communities that we serve or um of you know of the country at large. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So
0: <laughs> so I want to ask you about identity data because we, one of the things that we talked about in our presentation was about identity data, and since that time, of course, APRA has released uh, the APRA DEI data guide, and um, and we are also, APRA is also partnering with CASE AFP AHP, ADRP, and AASP on a follow-up to that guide that talks about how um, identity data works in different professional spaces. Um, but we had we had talked about identity data. One of the things that we talked about was around um, some, some best practices and some practices we recommended against. Um, some of those things were Um, you know, guessing identity based on photos or names, not asking gift officers to to make assumptions, um, not viewing identity proxies as being uh, conclusive. An identity proxy, in our example, was like being a member of an identity-based association. Um, But we didn't anticipate at the time the extent to which vendors wanting to sort of meet this need of donor diversification, we're also going to start doing some of those things. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, um, on how that has evolved.
1: Yeah, so um, so I've been at PIH for almost a year now. So the previous, the preceding year, um, I was just starting to dig into a couple of data sets that were provided by vendors. This is when I was consulting. So I was doing this on um, as tied to projects for um, a couple of different, uh, two or three different clients. I don't want to get too specific to talk about who they are, what the purposes were, or the vendors. But I kind of felt I went in, there were a couple of data sets that I had, one that I started with that was from a vendor. And I just didn't, I had a lot of skepticism around how good or and how or accurate the data was before I even got into the ethics of how they obtained this data, much of which is, is not disclosed as part of their proprietary secret sauce and whatnot. So I didn't get, there was one, um, the client hired um, us to take the vendor supply data and then manually try to corroborate it with human research on an individual basis. And I left to join PIH before that project really was in the, you know, uh, fully active to see what the match rate looked like. Um, So I can't speak to that, but all of a sudden it kind of went from here are maybe two, possibly three options on vendors who have this data to kind of an explosion it felt like in the last year on, on vendors who have it. And there is definitely a, um, kind of two segments vendors who offer it on a, an individual basis, meaning here's a name, here's what demographics we think they're in. Mm-hmm. And then there's more the aggregate data where you're looking at sets. And that was um, something that Crystal Enter and Alex Oftley, my um, colleague, presented on recently at um, Nedra, which is interesting, but that was more about the aggregate use of data to kind of see how are we doing overall in general progress of different sectors, right? Yeah. Um I remain highly skeptical about the accuracy of individual data, both yeah. for the ethics and the accuracy. And um and I think that if it's something you have access to because it's like part of you know, a a, a data set that it's definitely worth looking at, but I wouldn't rely on it. And I think one of the things that we talked about as being really important, especially as I had set up that project, was to make sure that that data stayed separate from the database, from the CRM, right? We do not want to take third-party data and just upload it. Right. We want to make sure that we have, um, this is where my technical expertise <laughs> is a little thin, So I'm gonna start throwing around terms that may or may not be correct. But when we talk about data lakes, data warehouses, and whether they are cell sheets or thumb drive, whatever the case is, I think it's really important to keep that data separate. Mm-hmm. And then as you develop a process for segmenting and assigning levels of, of, of appropriate use and confidence, then taking it in small pieces and putting it into your database, because even if you put it in now and you think that it's clear that this is third- party data, data that you're not um, you're not putting your stamp of approval on as a staffer. Mm-hmm. A year from now, two years from now, five years from now, no people aren't necessarily going to remember' yeah, remember that. Yep, remember what the codes look like? So you have to be really explicit and really cautious. So it's definitely a time-intensive project, but I do think it's worth exploring. And I I think like everything else, prospect research, prospect development is such an odd um, industry in that it's relatively new. And when we started, there were all of these vendors who had services for other industries that we started to adopt. And as we started to adopt those those products and services, people are like, oh, prospect research is a thing. Let's now um, tailor it more. Let's now turn it around a little bit more so it's specifically used for um, prospect development. And so my hope is (laughs) with this first or second wave of data, the more we as human professionals um, assess it and provide feedback on how it does or doesn't work, what the pros and cons are, what the ethical lines that are, I think this third and fourth wave are gonna be much more um, usable and much more valuable um I, I so i would i would really encourage people to not just abandon it because it's not great now but to really critique it and provide those feedback i mean mm-hmm. i um i've spoken to many people at a vendor table back in the before times when we had in person conferences and found <laughs> at the in person conference again this year sure, the- it's in atlanta where you live <laughs> yes um sadly i have not really been out and about in Atlanta. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I to there. But yes, exactly. And and whether it's in, you know, in person's great, but whatever your mode is, right. I would strongly advise people to form an opinion about a product and share that feedback with the vendor. And I think if enough people do that, the is gonna get a lot better. I
0: love this because you're completely right. One, you know, I think where we're seeing a lot of this individualized assumptions around identity is from consumer, consumer data. Um, the use of consumer data is not, I'm not going to say it's not ethical, but certainly when we're thinking about it within our nonprofit space, um, I think we are applying a, a, an ethical framework against the use of, of different data, and um, and I think that um, when we provide that feedback to vendors and say, you know, we like we believe that we're not sure that the source of this is um, something that we feel. Is ethical or that we feel is reliable. Um, I I think that does help them to understand our work better, and then also the way in which we need to use and want to use data to inform our work. Um, yeah, I I completely agree with you. And I, you know, another thing we, in our in our presentation, you and I had talked about. Um, using self-identified data, which is also promoted in the the APRA DEI data guide, and that being sort of the gold standard in in data collection. Um, We didn't really talk about, we sort of brushed on um, evaluating the source of existing data, but we didn't really talk about, um, you know, the the fact that many of us um, have have worked in organizations where there's been a practice of many years of applying salutations or applying genders or pulling things over from admissions or from um, from another source um, for demographic data that we are not sure of the um, of the accuracy or of who even made the evaluation around the. Um, the accuracy, whether the person provided the information, or even if they had were given more options, say, than just male and female, um, or, you know, Mr, Ms, Mrs. And so we, we didn't really talk about that piece. But I think we're all sitting on years and years of data that was collected in circumstances that we really have no no way of verifying its accuracy, you know, what do you think we should do to sort of reconcile with, with those existing data?
1: I think it will really vary on the type of organization you're, you work at. Um, but, you know, ideally we need to, the ideal is to invite our constituents to self-identify. And maybe using the existing data is the entry point to that, to say, hi, we are embarking on this project to improve our identity data for XYZ purposes. We want to make sure that we are uh, treating it with respect and honoring our privacy. And in that vein, we are hoping you could confirm or update what we have on file, right? So it's like a nice introduction to say, hey, can you please tell us? But we're asking, here's why we're asking you. And here's how we're going to respect <laughs> what you say. And um, and also, it's okay to say you don't want to answer, right? And also, it's okay to
0: to want to change things over time. I mean, one of the things that you and I had been talking about was, The context in which the ask is made makes a big difference in in the way that somebody will respond, so if you're asking for demographic identity data in the say in the college admissions process. um, And you're asking someone who's 17 or 18 years old, um, they might feel differently or or feel. Like they can respond differently as an adult, and so I think um I think allowing people multiple opportunities to um to update those data um, is important and and also to to make the data more nuanced than the categories that we might have in some of those processes like admissions
1: absolutely, absolutely i um. <laughs> My second ever research job was the college I went to. And when I opened up my record, I was like, who said it <laughs> And I was like, oh, wait, that was me. That was me when I was 17. Forget it, I said that. <laughs> Based on a form that I felt I had to fill out and based on the options at that time and based how, on how I felt at 17 years old, which is not how I feel now. Right. So (laughs) but I remember being like shocked. I was like, I remember like my first reaction was like, who told you I was a a (laughs) palian? Well, and and identity is never fixed. I
0: mean, as much as we like to believe that there are categories of identity because we like to be able to report on things um those categories change and shift over time and of course there's been there have been there's been shifts around racial and ethnic categories there's been shifts around gender and sexuality categories and and also people become disabled and people come out of the closet i mean things do things do change over time and. You know, if you were, if you were advising an organization that has a bunch of these data in their database, and they're starting a a data collection effort um, using self identified data where they're asking constituents directly. What do you say, what do you recommend around the data they have Do they do you think they should. Like pull it out of those fields and put it somewhere else, and um, and then just go into a process of confirming
1: it. Possibly, but I'm sure that there'd be a lot of um, sort of want to say mechanical is not quite right, but that's usually the word I use when I am in talking about data stuff that I don't fully. It's not my wheelhouse, so let me give you an example. Um, unrelated to DEI data, there is a data set that my team was talking about even today. We are about to go into a CRM conversion and our decision was, here's a group of data that's messy and we're not confident about, let's leave it for now. And in the conversion is our big opportunity Mm -hmm. to clean it out, to just disregard it, start fresh, whatever. So, Sometimes circumstances will dictate what's possible and what's not, and you know, volume certainly matters, amount of staff, and all that. So, I'm okay with some sort of, at the very least, um, deactivation or like demarcation of okay, everything before X date Mm -hmm. when is is unconfirmed is unconfirmed. We can't speak to it but now going forward from x date forward here's what we know here's the level of confidence here's our sourcing yeah let um, trying to like recreate it that way yeah. so that's not possible for everybody depending on your 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 shop and your organization and your timeline but if you have the chance to uh, what's the word i want to say downgrade <laughs> at mm-hmm. the very least, right historical data that you're not confident about, that certainly would be a first step. Yeah, I and agree. And then at least get your arms around the pieces that you do feel comfortable with.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so here's my last question, Roslyn. In our presentation, we talked about cultural competency and we were, uh, referring people to a lot of the great research that's been done on the philanthropic practices and motivations of various diverse communities, including communities of color, uh, LGBTQ. Um, So there's a lot of great research on on philanthropic practices and motivations in in marginalized communities. And we also encourage people to do cultural competency assessments. but what we didn't talk about was cultural humility and um and how you know learning reading a report on the philanthropic even reading a great book on the philanthropic practices of the black community does not make you an expert in uh in the black community philanthropic practices if you are not a black person um and so
1: so I mean what are your thoughts on on that it's okay not to know everything (laughs) and you're better off being sitting with that and and acknowledging that on a daily basis than you are to just kind of go with the flow and the, the the one of the um sort of say analogies I've used is that you know I took some French there was a time I could speak French pretty well I could read it and write it pretty well but I cannot like if you drop me off in a French-speaking city I can get around but I'm gonna miss a lot Mm -hmm. and the last thing you should do is ask me to edit a French document (laughs) (laughs) for distribution right I need to acknowledge that just because I can get by and like in a restaurant or like get directions from somebody does not mean that I have the ability to get tone and nuance and um, references and idiom and all that kind of stuff. So you kind of have to put your your hat on that you just took some classes at some point. (laughs) But the best thing to do is to get a native speaker. Yeah. Uh, and it, and 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 hopefully even if it's communications, a native writer, like someone who's like a professional writer in the language of French, and that's going to be your best outcome. Yeah. And if you if you shrink in your head that gap, because you know if you learned a ton about whichever segment in the past year, that's great. But one year is not expertise. Right it feels great. You might feel like you've made a lot of progress and it's good that you made that progress, but you have to remember that there's a whole lifetime that you don't have. Right. Right. And, and, and some true lived
0: experience. I think that, um, that, that practice of cultural humility is as important as the practice of cultural competency. I think, you know, cultural, I, I don't want to disparage the idea of cultural competency, because I do think it's problematic when, um, when we think, when we look at other philanthropic practices outside of our own communities, and, um, and they don't make sense to us. So we just say, like, well, there, that community isn't philanthropic, or they're, they're not, you know, they're not philanthropic in a way that, that uh, makes any sense to our to our process? I mean, we we should and need to reexamine the ways in which we are engaging people philanthropically. So we should be reexamining our processes. Um, and and I think it's important to understand different practices of philanthropy. Um, but that does not that learning them doesn't make you an expert in them. And I think that's where the cultural humility of always being able to um, to ask questions with um, with humility and with thoughtfulness and and being and building your ability to have those conversations about how identity might have informed someone's life experience and and the way in which they're approaching their um, their thinking around philanthropy. Um, I think that's a, a a thing that we need to encourage people to become more comfortable with I mean I I think encouraging people to become more comfortable talking about identity about race um, is a very important thing because it helps start to um, you know to break down the idea that you um, that by being colorblind, being colorblind is like the, the best possible way to engage with other people. I mean, I I think it's very important that we can acknowledge um, our differences and acknowledge the different ways in which we, we exist in society. Um, but you are not going to become an expert just by reading a, a
1: book. No, and you know it kind of comes back to why diversity is important on staff right and in your volunteer networks, because there are people, if you have diversity in those groups, then there will be more people, you can lean on for expertise and lived Mm -hmm. experience. Um, which is not to say that you want to put the onus on them and like dump things on them in terms of now nah, that's your job, <laughs> especially when it's literally not their job. <laughs> but, right, <laughs> if you have, um, again, humility and approach and explain what you're trying to do, what your challenges are, and invite them to help and contribute, you're probably going to be, uh, you know, um, Realize you have a lot more resources than you think. Mm -hmm. and a lot more expertise available than you think. And you're also going to learn a lot of things that are probably not even on your radar. I have had um, numerous conversations with people over the years, many years, over decades, where I am shocked that they're not aware that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Meaning, from my perspective, there's a raging problem a huge problem, an obvious problem. And I've been talking to people who are close to the problem, if not in the problem, who are completely unaware. And um, so I would kind of suggest to people that you should not assume that you've even identified your problems. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so true. I would guarantee they're almost, pro- almost certainly problems that are big problems that you don't even know about. You
0: have not, that. exactly.
1: <laughs> um, so that's what, one thing I just want to say I, as a shout out to the um, APRA uh, data guide. I really like the part where it says the constituent, constituent states and then um, the suggested response from yeah. your staff. And to the best of your abilities, use I would use that as a model for framing conversations going forward. Expand on that because you are acknowledging, oh, here's a thing I may or may not know about. And the response is usually like, oh, well, based on what my organization is doing, how about this? Would that be okay? And I think that's a that whole framework um displays humility (laughs) Mm -hmm. displays the uh, the knowledge that you that you um are figuring you're still figuring things out but you're committed to being respectful and responsible in doing so yeah Uh, shout out to whoever came up with that idea (laughs) Uh, our brilliant
0: apra volunteers uh in the in the apra ethics and compliance committee came up with that idea so shout out shout out to those brilliant volunteers
1: I'm gonna gonna take one I'm gonna take just a point to talk about (laughs) something that's not directly our um, industry but has it's a current event that I've been following and um it, it, it has a lot of parallels to it so, you may have heard about some of the Windsor family royal visits, their royal chores. They had some to the West, uh, to the Caribbean recently. They're now um, about to celebrate um, the Queen's 70th Jubilee and whatnot. And the whole construction of the royal family is that they bring attention and resources and funding as working royals, that they are patrons of charities and causes, right? But if you look at how how they rolled out some of the stuff, you can tell they have, they could use some help. And that I happen to know that the actual uh, data on the diversity of their staff is not great. And I can't help but think of how many obvious errors they made that could have been avoided had they been more thoughtful mm-hmm. <laughs> about what they were doing and were not so stuck in the this is the way we've always done it though yes right i could talk about that for a long time i'm not going to because it's awful. but um it's a really good um shift in the frame the, the the mental framework from charity versus philanthropy philanthropy versus community building. Yes. Yes. And we really want to make sure that we kind of start in the community building. I'm doing this for the greater good, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the cause, and then figure out how to center to really center that mission. And with the acknowledgement that possibly your mission statement needs to be right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same, maybe it does, maybe it does start
0: there. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's, it's a really, I agree with you because I think that we, our whole conception of philanthropy, even how our practices have evolved um our it's it's a very very specific and limited perspective and and so when there are when there are people who say that certain cultures aren't philanthropic um that's usually because they're only applying sort of our our own lens this lens that we've developed in this very small community in a in a really very short period of time um, as as the only way to practice philanthropy, and um, and truly, you know, we need to be completely disrupting it, completely decolonizing philanthropy, and that does include um, evaluating like is is our mission actually sound? Is our mission actually furthering social justice? Is our mission actually serving the people that? we are we are trying to serve and and I think sometimes that that charity lens that, that white sort of white savior charity lens um, makes that perspective very muddled and and you know puts a, a a specific solution against a problem that the people who are funding it have never experienced and
1: to keep it real It's entirely possible. And in some cases, more than likely that your very organization created the problem that you're trying to fight. That's just the reality of the situation. It doesn't mean it has to stay that way. You don't have to continue to create and recreate and reinforce the problem. But if you're not really analyzing um, your organization's own history and the and even considering how the needs of the population you serve may have changed over the years, over the decades, then you're never gonna get where you need to be.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Um, and it it doesn't mean that you have to get um, bogged down by guilt or blame or finger pointing. You just have to say, okay, today. <laughs> What are we doing? How are we doing things differently? What do we really wanna keep and why? Mm -hmm. What do we really wanna change and why? Um, And it's a long-term commitment. You're not gonna see um, a whole lot of results in a short amount of time, but most of the problems that our organizations are, um, are fighting are also, were also created over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So you just have to commit to doing better every day, every quarter, every year, every decade, and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean,
0: sorry, go ahead. In just the smallest way, diversifying your donor base is, is just a piece of that. And remembering that um, building a constituent base takes place over many, many years, and you aren't going to you aren't going to completely make amazing progress on having a very diverse donor base um, with a year of focused work. It is something that you are always going to have to be aware of and be thinking of as you are. Prospecting, as you're thinking about um, the vendor data, as you're doing prospect research and you are focusing on very specific things as being um, as being evidence of um, capacity or inclination, um those are those are the kinds of things that we have to undo in our thinking around our work and and um, in, in order to make that progress that will happen slowly over time.
1: yeah. And there's one one thing I would want to add, kind of touching back to the cultural competence and humility piece, is that you should never forget that um, people within communities and networks talk to each other, whether you're aware of it or not. So, current staff, former staff, uh, future potential staff, current donors, past donors, (laughs) future potential donors, these are all. Uh, networks that talk to each other, and the more people can report a positive experience, the more people will be be um, interested and engaged with your organization. Mm-hmm. And so, doing the right thing is it. You should be doing the right thing because it's the right thing. But there's also tangible benefits to doing the right thing that will add to your success long-term if you're consistent and um, honest. And when you make a mistake, take a misstep, you really hold yourselves accountable for those mistakes. Nothing's ever gonna go perfectly, but so many times when, you know, I'll use more, it's, this has happened in the nonprofit space, but it happens in the corporate world a lot too, although that, the corporation makes a mistake, and instead, and and the real problem is how they handled it, how they responded to it, right? Because it kind of like if, if a mistake is uncovered, then people now pay attention. And um, actually, I'll use my old um, my my grade school as an example. Um, somebody did a racism. Somebody did a racism, <laughs> and it made the news. And I was so impressed with how school leadership addressed the problem that I started writing Chats. Yeah. Right? And I'm not a major donor, but um, it made made a big difference to me. It made a difference to a couple of people I know who are still involved with the um, organization. And it just kind of, spread a like a different kind of goodwill around. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And so instead of being embarrassed that the racism happened, I was really proud at how leadership handled it. Yeah. And just and it was great. I mean, that's
0: the, that's why knowing and understanding your, the why of of this that why you're why you're working on this why you're working on inclusivity and diversification and equity and justice is so important because that is what makes your responses to missteps feel authentic and and keeps it from feeling like um, you're doing this as an optics exercise. You're you're focusing on DEI as an optics exercise, and I think that I mean the difference is is very obvious when you look at organizations where where you can see that you know, they, they are focusing on DEI because they feel like they need to, or they feel like they're going to be criticized for not doing it, or even because they feel like it's the right thing to do, but they don't necessarily understand why it's the right thing to do, or or what maybe they sh- should have done differently, or what they're doing that is possibly problematic or upholding systems of oppression. And um, And I think doing that deep exploration of the why is really the it's the foundation of doing this work um you know I I think that we
1: uh,
0: I I'm not going to speak for you (laughs) I tend to be very systems oriented so when we were approaching this approaching this presentation we were we were very focused on how do you do this in a in a tactical step-by-step way but um but you can't do it until you um
1: until you have Um, until you have the why articulated. Well, I should say you can't do successfully. No, that's right. And and you might end up doing more damage than good if you don't know the why and you make mistakes and you don't handle them properly, right? You could actually set yourself back if you're not, um, if you don't start with the right place and center the right thing. So yes, why, 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 why? Should be should be on everybody's mind. And the last thing I'll say about that, uh, the kind of the cultural competency part, is the um, you know reading books and articles and going to presentations are all good things. I encourage that. But um, there are a lot of books, (laughs) there are a lot of articles, there are a lot of presentations, and you should think about it as a continuous education thing, right? There are just, they're, they're just all, there's a lot out there. There's a lot that's already been done and said and written and explained. And if you're really committed, you really have to just do the work. Mm-hmm. Well, Rosalyn, it's always
0: wonderful to have an opportunity to talk to you.
1: Like <laughs> it, Nisa. And it's,
0: and it's good to, uh, to have a moment to just uh, step back and think about think about what's happened over the last few years and uh, and how it has changed our perspective or informed our perspective.
1: Yes. So um, this also buys us a little time to figure out what our next presentation will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in the interim, everybody should be reading
0: the DEI data guide by APRA and also the upcoming um, data guides that will be released through uh, a collaborative partnership between CASE, AFP, AHP, ADRP, AASP, and APRA. All the letters. All the letters. Every single acronym (laughs) under the sun. Well, Roslyn, have a wonderful day. Thank you for
1: joining. You too. And thanks APRA people, to whoever's listening. Thank you very much for um, your time. And we hope to see you virtually or in person soon and look forward to the next conversation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond
0: Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode check out the show notes if you like the show and want to help others find us please subscribe to and rate us on itunes until next time